Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. And sometimes we talk about reconciliation. Now, humans are not built to recant or regret or have revelations. They are built to make and sustain beliefs, even in the face of overwhelming evidence that they're wrong. This is what makes Amber Scora's story of leaving her faith all the more fascinating. She was raised as a Jehovah's Witness, a Christian sect that descended from the Millerites, a doomsday cult in the mid-1800s whose followers never stopped believing that the end would come, even as the predicted date came and went and came and went and came and went. The Millerites' experience is the basis for a specific theory in social psychology laid out in a book called When Prophecy Fails. And that's the idea that those who hold extreme beliefs, if presented with contrary evidence, will actually become more devout and more assertive in their proselytizing and develop new interpretations of their scripture as a way of dissolving the disappointment and tension that come with having to face reality. You may have some notion about how this theory is relevant beyond Amber's personal and statistically atypical story. Amber Scora is a writer living in Brooklyn, New York. Her articles have been published in the New York Times, The Believer, and USA Today. Prior to coming to New York, Scora lived in Shanghai, where she was the creator and host of the podcast Dear Amber, The Insider's Guide to Everything China. She is here to talk about her first book, Leaving the Witness, Exiting a Religion, and finding a life. So Amber, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about your book. Do you want to just give us like a a back cover, you know, synopsis really quick before we get deeper? Yeah, um, I was a third generation Jehovah's Witness, and I was so devout, believed it so fully that I learned Mandarin and moved to China to preach. <laughs> that and is intense. Was, that's that's yeah. a lot. <laughs> I really believed it. Yeah. And when I was in China, because the work was done underground, um, because it was illegal, it was done underground, um, I had some space from the community that I had at home for the first time. And Having that distance, a little bit of mental space as well as physical space, um, basically started to turn my world upside down slowly. Um, Also, being in a new culture and language caused me to see my religion with different eyes, and I started to see some cracks in my faith. And not only cracks, just some things that 
seemed like they didn't add up, but some things that started to bother me. And ultimately, I left the religion because this is not a religion where you can do it halfway. Um, And for that, I was shunned by my family and all of my friends and basically had to start my life over again already in my 30s. I love that that you know, a couple paragraphs still isn't enough to cover everything in the book. Yeah, like there's, there's so much more in it. But um, obviously, we want to get into the nitty gritty of 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 your journey. And I understand you have an excerpt to kind of place us at the at a at a point in it. Yeah, um, this excerpt. I'm already in Shanghai at this point, and I've been there a while as a Jehovah's Witness. I've already learned how we do our work secretly, um, and I've started to cultivate friendships with people in order to convert them into Bible studies when I knew that the people were safe, as in they wouldn't turn us into the authorities or anything. So um, by this point in the book, I have a couple Bible students, and I meet them sort of in clandestine locations and study the Bible with them and have discussions about basically trying to teach them what I believe to be the truth. Uh, In particular, there's one Bible student who uh, became a very close friend. Her name was Jean. And uh, at this point in the book, we've been studying for a little while, and our friendship is deepening. Jean and I began to spend as much time talking about other things as we did about the Bible. We both enjoyed our study, but also looked forward to the moment the chapter was finished and our books were put discreetly back into our bags, and our other conversations could begin. What had started with Jean had also begun to wedge itself in my other Bible studies. When I gave them their copies of our publications and a Bible, the the covers carefully wrapped so as not to alert any around us as to their content— I had felt as though I was a bestower of truth, a giver of happiness, and the peace of mind that I had myself. I was convinced I could save these people here in a noisy con- here in a noisy corner of a McDonald's or on the bench of a shopping mall. But as my Chinese improved, I began to notice that the people I studied with were reacting in ways I hadn't picked up on before I understood the culture and language to the degree I did now. <laughs> Occasionally, I would feel a flush of embarrassment as I sensed a shift in tone as the student across the table read through a paragraph in the book. This is from the book. As soon as Jesus became king, he threw Satan and his wicked angels out of heaven and down to the locality of the earth. That is why things have become so bad here on earth since 1914. 1914? The date seemed to get larger and weirder the longer we stared at it on the page. This date had been a given in my life, and its significance as the beginning of the end times was beyond question for me. In fact, there was a whole chain of scriptures I had written down from one of our publications that I could use to prove its truth. But as we read through the paragraphs and talked about the pictures in the book, it occurred to me that some of this seemed to my students quaint or silly even. A look or a pause would reveal to me that some of the things I had taken as lifelong truths, things that I had built my life around, seemed just crazy to them. At times, I would cringe inside when I noticed that what I said could have been insulting, perhaps even arrogant. The things I taught as universal truths completely disregarded the lived experience of much of the world's population. Creation, one God, everlasting life, stay away from worldly family members, marry in the Lord. There was no one in the Lord to marry here. Don't care about money. Don't get an education. They would sometimes laugh a little, especially at this last idea. As I read to them from the Bible, I myself began to wonder about what was going on in the world outside of the Middle East in the same era. 
counting back in the timeline of Chinese history to figure out what was happening in Asia when Jesus was flinging Satan out of heaven or curing the sick. Still, I taught them that this religion I told them about was the chosen one, better than all the others. The so-called Christian religions, Buddhism, Islam, Taoism, Mormonism, all of them. I did so without question as to the veracity of my conviction. But what I did wonder about was why my conviction in my rightness was any less valid than that of any other true believer. Why had God made it such that some people, like me, grew up in a society that revolved around Christianity, and others in one that revolved around entirely different yet equally moral systems of belief? And why was the price for that everlasting destruction if they didn't listen to me? If my religion was the only one that God accepted, why hadn't God made it a more level playing field? I love that excerpt in part because you actually hit um, exactly on what my own sort of struggles with Christianity were as a child. Like the idea that like, wait a minute, there are billions of other people out there, you know, like, yeah, are they just all going to hell? And someone telling me, yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> I was, it was evangelical church that um, I was going to at the time. And that was almost a deal breaker for me. There was ultimately actually the deal broke when they told me that you could sin as much as you wanted and then have a deathbed conversion and it would still count. And I was like, <laughs> well, like then, well, hey, yeah, that's I what was, I'm going to exactly. do. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, well, then why not? Why doesn't everybody do that? That seems, yeah. like, <laughs> that seems like a little too easy out for me. Yeah. Um, but speaking of things that we came to believe as children or came to question as children, I would really love it if you could describe the belief system of Jehovah's Witness as, I mean, as time allows, because I think it's a religion that a lot of people have heard of. And of course, we've seen a Jehovah's Witness perhaps um, come to our door or, you know, passing out tracts at the mall. Um, but there are some things that make it particularly, um, it's, I wouldn't say overall completely unique, but it is more distinct than perhaps people realize. Yeah, I'm always surprised how little people know about Jehovah's Witnesses because everyone knows of Jehovah's Witnesses. But just I think the issue is, is that most people in the Western world kind of just think of them as this background scenery and aren't really interested in engaging with them or finding out what they have to say. And I know this because I used to knock on doors 70 hours a month and there were very few doors that opened or if they did open, open to any kind of you know reception at all. It was usually someone saying they weren't interested. But um, yeah, most people, if you ever just picked up one of their watchtowers from the cart where they're witnessing in the mall or in the subway, uh, you would find uh kind of like an overview of what they believe. Uh, essentially, almost everything stems back to the belief that they believe the world is ending any day now, that we're living in the last days, and that an Armageddon is about to come, um, and that Armageddon is God's war to end wickedness. So to the Jehovah's Witnesses, what that means is that uh, everyone on earth who is not a Jehovah's Witness will be destroyed. And uh, that's kind of the impetus for almost like for a lot of the religion, for a lot of what their motivations are, because they think that it's their duty to you know, evangelize and spread this message to save as many people as they can before the end comes. Uh, it also sort of is this under, underpinning that affects the way that they, a Jehovah's Witness will live their life. Because if you think the world is ending tomorrow, there, what is the point of, you know, going to college? What is the point right. of getting a career? What is the point of like, I mean, I didn't even know what a retirement fund was. <laughs> because like even our parents' parents, like my mom, when she was a 
early teens, she was told, you'll never graduate high school. Like, the end will come by then for sure. And here now my mom's in her 70s. So when you believe the world is ending that fully and strongly, it really affects your outlook on life. And what it leads to in other aspects are some of the more maybe people have heard of some of these beliefs and just they sound kind of weird. But for example, they don't allow you to take blood transfusions, even if it saves your life. And the reason is they've pulled out, you know, the leaders have pulled out sort of some scriptures that to back that belief up. And really, ultimately, it doesn't matter if you lose your life because this is not the real life. The real life is after Armageddon, anyone who died faithful will be resurrected back to earth and basically paradise will be restored. Um, so that kind of leads to the, that sort of thinking. And then um, also even there's another aspect of the religion where if anyone um, dissents or doesn't believe in the religion anymore or even commits a sin that they're not repentant enough for, they are kicked out of the congregation, shunned. And this is done as a means of trying to essentially so like tough love, try to get people back in to the organization before it's too late. You know, I could actually probably spend this whole hour just talking about the theology of Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. Because I mean, that's just the surface. Yeah. <laughs> because there's so much that's interesting to me. One, I'll add a historical footnote, which is that they're uh, theological descendants of the Millerites, right? Yeah. Which was the, uh, a revival movement. I can't remember the guy's first name. Miller. George Miller, I, yeah, I think. think. I think it's William. William Miller, um, who's famous in part because there was a, there's been studies done about that congregation because he had a very specific end date you know, for the world to to, yeah. to end and in date for the end. And it didn't happen and people redoubled their faith. Yeah. And it's become it's kind a of a really interesting phenomenon. <laughs> it's a phenomenon that now people like uh, refer to the Millerites in order to describe other kinds of similar events, like the QAnon people, right? Uh-huh. When QAnon f- keeps failing to come true, when the, when the you know, when mm-hmm. the Mueller report turned out to not be arresting a bunch of pedophiles, people will just embrace their belief all the harder. So Jehovah's Witness are the kind of end product of that redoubling of belief from the Millerites. It is a fascinating phenomenon. And Jehovah's Witnesses is like, even after when they branched off and became their own religion from their original roots, um, they've picked out dates too along the way. And every time Armageddon didn't come up to the last time they did this was like 1975 and then it didn't come. Um, but it's remarkable how, yeah, something could fail so utterly, but yet you could believe in it even more strongly because you have to. You, you're you so invested in it. And there's other another thing that may seem small to people, but I think it'll be significant as a way of, of marking out just how um, cut off from the so-called, I guess, not the real world. You guys were the real world. Jehovah's Witnesses is the real world from mm-hmm. our false world is there's no celebration of holidays. Right. Oh, yeah. I forgot to mention that, yeah. which is a yeah, very <laughs> unusual thing. Um, yeah. No birthdays, no Christmas, um, not really any holidays, like even public holidays. And there's always some underlying reason. For example, most of the reasons are because there's pagan roots mm-hmm. in Christmas, like the tree is like an old pagan symbol. Um, you know, July 4th. Witnesses uh, are politically neutral, so they are sort of anti-nationalism. There's a lot of different reasons, but essentially what, what it accomplishes is a sort of separation. Mm-hmm. Like it keeps you in a society within a greater society and creates uh, the ability to sort of have this, you know, us versus them dynamic that gives the group structure and form in a way. Another footnote that I find fascinating is that we do have Jehovah's Witnesses to thank for not having to say the Pledge of Allegiance 
in oh, yeah, school. That's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's sort of a strange, it's a, it's a, they, and I believe the American atheists actually did a, were a joint plaintiffs in the case, um, which if memory serves me correctly, is actually in New Jersey. I don't know why mm-hmm. I know these things, but um, yeah. An unlikely, an unlikely alliance, those two. <laughs> an unlikely alliance, but I mean, it's something, it is, you know, two wrongs can make a right, I guess. I don't know, <laughs> stop clock, something like that. Yeah. Let's move on to China, because one of the most fascinating aspects of a, of a really interesting life that you've led is that you had to go someplace quite repressive to gain your freedom. And you talked about it a little bit when you were talking about um, when you gave us a description of the book overall. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little more about that, um, finding freedom, a kind of freedom in in that structure. Yeah, it was very unexpected. When I was a, what we called a pioneer is basically a missionary who goes out preaching 70 hours a, a month, could be anywhere in your home city, another country. Jehovah's Witnesses, for the large part, fund themselves when they do a mission like this. But for me, I, I had started studying the Bible with Chinese immigrants in my home city of Vancouver and then slowly became more interested in learning Mandarin. And because, as I mentioned, most people in Canada do not open their doors even and you're spending 70 hours a month, it can be quite boring. You just, I sort of started to think about going to another country, going to China eventually. But I didn't know how the work was done there because given the nature of the fact that we were illegal in China, no one was allowed to say if they were there how we did the work. So it wasn't like I went there looking for freedom. I went there thinking I was, you know, in these last few months before Armageddon, I'm going to convert a bunch of, you know, people that have never had a chance to learn the truth before. Uh, when I got there, though, it was very different because to illustrate, if you're a Jehovah's Witness in anywhere else in the world, you go to five meetings a week at the Kingdom Hall. You go to preaching meetups multiple times a week. Uh, the spare time you have when you're not working, say, a part-time job to support yourself, which is what most of us did, you would be doing Bible studies, studying the Watchtower publications. And then when you weren't doing that, if you were ever going to do some socializing, it was always done with Jehovah's Witnesses. So your life revolved around the organization. In China, because it was underground when we got there, there was hardly anyone there that was a Jehovah's Witness. And so there just wasn't the same structures. For example, there was only one meeting a week, and it was in a different location, secret location every week. Um, And then for preaching, you were in the city of, I think, 20 million people on your own, because the other Jehovah's Witnesses who were there lived in all different parts of the city. So you were basically told to just start doing your preaching by getting to know random people that you met. Uh, And unlike at home, the most I would get to know someone was like go to their door and if they didn't want to be receptive to my message, I wouldn't become their friend. Even workmates, I would keep at arm's length. But in China, we were told to make friends with people first and get to know them more deeply before we ever brought up the Bible just to make sure they were safe and that they um, wouldn't turn us into the government. So what that had, that effect that that had on me was that as long as I kept secret what I was doing. I would never hopefully be found out by the government. Like in that sense, no, I wasn't free. I didn't have religious freedom, but I had a strange religious freedom in the sense that my life was suddenly opened up to new people, um, to new ways of using my time. Mm -hmm. And that was really strange for a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, you write in the book a fair amount about having to just create these instances of meeting people, which sounds terrifying to me by the way. Like, I can't, 
I'm in I think it's why I'm here at cocktail parties now. Oh, I imagine you are. I I can just go talk to anyone. (laughs) It it is it's I was like um it was like reading like a a Stephen King novel for me to like, oh she's gonna have to talk to a stranger. Oh my god, how's she gonna do it? Um but it also put me in mind of something that I think is is a interesting through line in the book right up from from beginning to the very end, which is um, the process of evangelism. Like, what is evangelism, right? Yeah. Because there's the kind of evangelism that we think of when we think of the Jehovah's Witness, which is the walking up to someone in your in your garb, your no- noticeable yeah. garb, like you're, you're yeah. proclaiming who you are right away, yeah. having the literature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and basically asking a yes or no question of the person. Right. Yeah. Like, do you want to talk further about your soul? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. No. Okay. I'm on to the next person. And then there's a kind of evangelism that you were kind of forced into, which is something more like, which I associate with AA, believe it or not. I'm in 12-step program. This is really good. (laughs) It's an interesting Um, connection. (laughs) Which is, in AA, we talk about having a program of attraction, not promotion, Mm -hmm. which means you never like tell someone you need to be an A. Well, never. Sometimes you tell people that because you're human. But the idea is you do not try to recruit people to AA, you know, like instead it's a, it's a little different, but instead you just try to live a life that seems attractive, you know, and you just are a person who is sober. And if someone's interested, they can ask you Mm -hmm. that to me is one pole maybe. And then you had what happened in China, which is sort of between those two things. For yeah. You, right. Like it was a little closer to the like attraction, not promotion, but you're also trying to get something done. You had an ulterior motive. Yeah, it definitely felt more to the ulterior motive side. Um, but it's interesting when you raise it, I was thinking how funny I had never thought of that in the sense that I had you have this visceral identity as a Jehovah's Witness in your you know the Western world. And you're right. When I was there that identity was shed. Mm-hmm. And it, it's strange because then you're interacting with people with an altered state already. Mm-hmm. And um, as you say, I think it's probably people are much more inclined to listen to you if you're already a friend than if you're this person coming and shoving something down their throat. So in a way, maybe that was why it was a lot easier to start Bible study there. <laughs> um, but also it was easier because, you know, they didn't even know what Jehovah's Witnesses were. So there was like no jokes on late night TV about, <laughs> like you know, it was a little bit different. They didn't have any of the backstory. Right. But I actually think that, yeah, it does not surprise me at all that you would have done better witnessing. So, I mean, however you wanted to find it, like there, you would have had more, quote unquote, yeah. success in a place where what you were trying to do was establish a relationship first. And Definitely. Then, and then slip in, trying to slip in the, the you know, ulterior motive. But yeah, definitely. It's like the soft sell yeah. instead of the hard sell. <laughs> but here's, a, here's, here's something that I was thinking as I read, though. I mean, something that I feel like I've had to learn the hard way, both in terms of like AA and in terms of um, just my own personal relationships is that as soon as you want a specific thing from someone, as soon as you want them to believe a specific thing, you've mm-hmm. kind of, it's hard, it, it becomes harder. Yeah. Because that ulterior motive just, it weakens the relationship. Yeah, I think it's like the weight of expectation is one thing. 
And it also takes away the ability to authentically connect Mm -hmm. with a person. I think it's interesting to me, there's almost like there was evangelism in reverse happening for you. Yeah, I think that's true. It it was very—I wasn't aware of it at the time, but looking back now, I definitely think that's true. Because these other people didn't have ulterior motive, right? No. They just wanted to be your friend. Yeah. And in a way, you learned that. Like, (laughs) you learned about having a connection with people that wasn't based on religion. Yes, and completely. And also about, you know, relationships that weren't conditional on belief mm-hmm. or believing the same thing, mm-hmm. which was very new to me. Because in Jehovah's Witnesses, the second you don't believe everything, you're put out, you're shunned, mm-hmm. you're considered like dangerous and subversive. So that, you know, every relationship as a Jehovah's Witness, I wouldn't have realized this at the time until I started to doubt things and saw exactly how fragile and conditional those relationships were. And it's a very different kind of basis on which you form the bonds with people in your life. Yeah, in a way, they were doing the attracting, not promoting, I think, because they were offering you a vision of life in which people did have relationships that were based on just being interested in each other, right, and not sharing the same belief system. Yeah, I think about that with Jean, the Bible student I mentioned in the reading. Um, she would just share things about her belief system without any desire to convert me to Confucianism. She just thought it was interesting to share. And I know that that was why she studied the Bible with me, because it felt like we were on this equal footing. I mean, we taught each other about the Bible or Confucianism, but we also taught each other about food. Like, she would introduce me to uh, all delicious Chinese foods, and I would introduce her to cappuccinos. <laughs> that doesn't <laughs> you know. seem fair, by the way, I have to say. Like, yeah. And then, yeah, I know, right? I think you got the good end of the deal there. The, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Although the funny part is, is that the price was the same. Like, a cappuccino costs the same as, like, a four-course meal. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, it's like import. But um, And then also language and culture. You know, we would sort of almost have this exchange where we would teach each other the words that we didn't know and... Um, the things that we didn't understand about each other's culture. Did you know that millennials have three times as much student debt as their parents? That's not right. But you can get your student loans right by refinancing your loans with SoFi. It's a fast and easy process. It's all online and only takes two minutes to check your rate. Refinancing your student loans could save you thousands of dollars. SoFi is the leading student loan refinancer in the United States. They've refinanced hundreds of thousands of student loans, and 98% of SoFi members would recommend SoFi to a friend. It's fast, easy, and all online, and you can get your rate again in just two minutes. Just lock in that fixed low rate and make one simple monthly payment. It's that easy. And when you refinance your student loans with SoFi, you also get access to SoFi membership, which offers exclusive benefits to help you get ahead in your money, life, and career. Check your rate in two minutes on SoFi.com slash friends. That's S-O-F-I dot com slash friends. SoFi Lending Corp, CFL, number 6054612. Friends, let's talk about Rothy's. You're a regular listener to the show. Uh, You know that they have the seal of approval of, of activists everywhere, including some very specific activists that are friends of the pod. I love my Rothy's. And I was thinking they're actually kind of the perfect shoe for this time of year, at least in Minnesota, uh, because they are both cool in the sense that they breathe. They're also machine washable and they also uh, won't like stretch out or be weird in the rain. And we're in this period right now here in Minneapolis where it's both stinking, sticky, hot 
and thunderstorms. <laughs> so it's good to have a comfortable shoe that won't cause blisters, whether it's wet or dry. And they're also like, I mean, this is important. They're very cool looking. I love my red camo ones. They are stylish, sustainable, comfortable, washable, really all you need in a pair of shoes. They're the perfect flats for life on the go. They go with yoga pants. They go with dresses and skirts. They are seamlessly crafted from recycled water bottles. They're ultra comfortable. And as soon as you slip them on, you will know because there's zero break-in period. It'll blow your mind that they're made of those recycled plastic water bottles. They don't look like it, um, but you are saving the planet as you walk. Rothy's are manufactured in zero-waste factories, and they ship directly in the shoebox, no unnecessary packaging. These are the feel-good flats you'll want in more ways than one. Plus, Rothy's also come with free shipping and free returns and exchanges. There's no risk, no worries, no reason not to try them. Check out all the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com slash WFLT. Go to rothys.com, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash WFLT to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, and sustainability, these are the shoes that you have been waiting for. Head to rothys.com slash WFLT today. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Let's move to a much more literal um, version of attraction, not promotion, and your departure from the faith, which is your relationship with Jonathan. Tell us a little bit about that because it's a, it's a significant turning point in the book and your life, for that matter. Yes. So who was Jonathan? So Jonathan, I I ended up getting part-time work in Shanghai as a podcaster, which was, was like the first wave of podcasting back in 2006, 2007. And he was a customer. He listened to the shows. And in that era, there was not any social media yet, but we did have online forums. And um, my job was to be the online community sort of manager. And I would interact with all of the customers and listeners to the podcast. And sometimes they would write me emails. And it was my job to be friendly and answer their questions. And Jonathan started writing me like any other person did for the job. Um, but for some reason, we just kept talking like more over email. Um, and it was always topics to do with China or learning Chinese. Uh, but then, you know, one day he started G-chatting me and then I started coming to work, and I would find myself G-chatting with him almost every day. <laughs> and it was just sort of an innocuous friendship almost. I didn't even know what he looked like. He lived in Los Angeles. But over time, our friendship, as I feel like online friendships can easily do, it became deeper and more personal more quickly than maybe it would have in person because there was no person in front of you. You could maybe reveal more or something. <clears throat> And keep in mind, at this time, I was married, and I had been a Josephus my entire life, and uh, I had kept worldly people at bay my entire life. But I was—I I think because there was no body, there was no person, it didn't seem wrong. Like, I just felt like it was—I was part of my job. Well, I want to interject a couple of things here. One, I think okay. it's important to kind of to understand the context um, that— uh, you probably didn't even know what an emotional affair was 
right? No. Like that idea that this would be anything forbidden. I mean, I'm sure it started to come up as it started to get more forbidden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I, 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 it seems to me like you were earnestly somewhat innocent in in pursuing this relationship. Yeah, like it just sort of evolved. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I mean, I think I was quite naive just because of the nature of yeah. how I had grown up. Right. And it also wasn't like he had some drive either. Like he knew I was married. He was not trying to bring this to the next level. It's just as these things happen, right. they sort of, all of a sudden, what do you wake up and you're like, I think I have feelings for this person. And he was, and, and as he got to know you and discovered you were a Jehovah's Witness, he began actually, this is an interesting case study for the, if it matters, if you have an ulterior motive, right? Mm-hmm. Because he definitely had something of ulterior motive. I, I wonder if it's worth distinguishing the fact that he definitely wanted to to leave the witnesses, right? Like, was that, well, actually, tell me, does that how you thought of it? Or did you think of it as, as a debate? Maybe that matters to how, you, how it wound up going. Well, the second Jonathan found out that I was a Jehovah's Witness, which I told him in code, because we can't right. say these things online in China because people are spying. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, he had a very strong reaction. And he lives in Los Angeles. And I think because he's like worked a lot with Scientologists, he's sort of been a person who's interested in cults. And uh, he knew a little bit about Jehovah's Witnesses, but not a lot. But based on things that I had said, you know, in the course of our conversations, he basically came out and said, "Ah, I knew it when I told him. He's like, I knew that you were under the control of something. And that really made me mad because that I'm a pretty strong personality. If you told me that I someone was controlling me, I would be really big to differ with you. And I did. <laughs> um, anyways, but it wasn't like, I mean, I, I, I don't think he ever set off thinking he's going to deprogram me from a cult. But I think that he just didn't want to see someone that he knew not seeing who they were. I don't know. I mean, obviously, I think he was probably attracted to me and on some level, wanted me out because Jehovah's Witness would never, (laughs) you know, we were like very morally pure. But I don't really think that was his initial motive. I think he's just a really helpful person. He's actually a very kind person and he cares about people. And I don't think everyone would have bothered taking the time to try and show somebody, you know, the fact that they were under suffering from indoctrination. But he did. It was just something about him that he felt motivated to do it. I am really interested in how this does and doesn't fit into the attraction, not promotion, ulterior motive paradigm. Um, because it does seem to me that in there's one level in which like he definitely would pref- would have preferred you not be a Jehovah's Witness, right? That That's yeah. an ulterior motive. But at the same time, there was a couple other messages happening. You know, one, he was attracted to you, right? Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. sort of a fuzzy, warm, fuzzy feeling, mm-hmm. right, yeah. overall. Um, And that also conveys a sense of acceptance, right? Even if you hadn't, even if you stayed a Jehovah's Witness, he was still attracted to you. So there's this sort of like warm feeling of like, oh, we have this thing that's separate of whether or not I stay a Jehovah's Witness, which is this attraction. That's true, because as a Jehovah's Witness, um, any, say if there was ever, and I wasn't thinking this way at the time, but I can say this now looking back, is that if there was ever a Jehovah's Witness man who was attracted to me and then I was like, oh, I don't believe in it anymore— he would stop. Right. <laughs> so you're right. Maybe it was the first time that someone sort of showed this kind of deep interest in me. And I, you know, we had this very ongoing, interesting conversation and we laughed a lot. But also it wasn't dependent on whether I believed or I didn't believe. Yeah. 
because I, I think that's sort of a very interesting variation on this paradigm, right? Is is that mm-hmm. you're still conveying like I am I I am a safe space for you. Well, maybe maybe we shouldn't use that exact wording, but the attraction, the acceptance, you know, yeah. no matter what you believe, I am I have this relationship with you, this warm relationship with you, and you don't yeah. have to change your mind for you to enjoy this exactly. warm relationship. Yeah, because we would argue and I would tell him why he was wrong and he would tell me why I was wrong. Uh, and then we would just go back to talking. Like, it, was, it wasn't it was like it was a deal breaker. There were a lot of other things to talk about, too. So spoiler alert for people who are going to read the book. Maybe it will tell them, uh, stop listening. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know. You know, we'll figure out a, a code to ha- have you come back in. But so spoiler alert, you do consummate this relationship with Jonathan. Yeah. Yeah. So... I'll let you talk a little bit about that. I have questions. <laughs> oh, I'm an open book. <laughs> well, um, I can try to sum it up. So you yeah. uh, have these really strong doubts, right? But w- by the time you flew out and you con- you con- somewhat concocted an excuse to see him, right? Like you were yeah. going to go visit friends in Mexico, but you totally. had a stop in Los Angeles. Oh, what a lucky coincidence, you know? Yeah. Um, so the background to that is that before, so I had started to, like, as this was uh, like ongoing over a year, so it wasn't something that happened overnight, but my marriage was like, um, we got married very young, and it probably should have been like a year-long college romance. That's what it would have been for anyone else, but because you're a Jehovah's Witness, you can't have sex unless you get married, and then you get married for the wrong reasons, and then you realize, like, oh, you grew, you're five years later, you're a completely different person, but you're not allowed to split up unless someone commits adultery. Mm. So by the time I had been married now, by the time I met with, you know, engaging in this conversation with Jonathan, I had been married for probably like eight or nine years. And it had been a very dead relationship for a long time. Uh, So as these things like do, it was coming to some sort of climax in the sense that in more ways than one, I was starting to have doubts about <laughs> like, my religion. Good choice of <laughs> words. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you don't get into that much detail in the many book. Many more ways than know? one. <laughs> exactly. But, um, but I think that their religious side was starting yeah. to, like, these things, they can't go on forever. Right. They're going to come to some kind of conclusion, or if you're in a religion like mine, some kind of apocalypse. Right. Because <laughs> that's how you know how to change your life, I guess. Um, So there was a religious side, but there was also the relationship side in that the more this relationship with Jonathan deepened, you know, I still had never met him or like sort of admitted to ourselves that we were even having an emotional affair. Um, I, it became more and more obvious to me how wrong my relationship felt, my marriage. So I had started to have these conversations with my husband asking him, you know, do you still love, do you love me? Like, why is our relationship like this? And in every discussion, he would basically admit that he, he did admit that he wasn't, he didn't love me, mm-hmm. but that it was the right thing to do to stay together because we were Jehovah's Witnesses and that if we waited till paradise, everything would be okay. Well, the problem for me was that I used to think that was the case and that's why I could stay in this sort of intolerable situation. But then when I started to believe there's maybe this paradise isn't actually coming, well, then I kind of was like, well, how do we stop? How do I get out of this? I don't believe that anymore. So, yes, I don't think I was, like, intentionally planning to go there and consummate my <laughs> this relationship with Jonathan. But subconsciously, I was looking for some way to blow it up because I needed to make a change. I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. And that's really—as someone who has had uh, occasions in her life 
to do big dramatic things because of a dude. Um, yeah. <laughs> I found this part especially interesting. Mm-hmm. Because it does seem like, you, 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 as you said it, I'll just draw it out a little bit more, which is that you had this incredibly deep conditioning, deep relationship with being a Jehovah's Witness um, almost your entire life. Um, it's what you knew, right? Yeah. And it seems like, you know, an extreme belief needs an extreme apostasy, you know? Yeah. Like you weren't going to get out of that by just sinning a little, you know? No, because the thing is, is like, even when you start to sort of drop away, you can't just like fade away. I, for example, I have these friends who are don't believe in it anymore and they've been still going to the meetings and the way that they're going to get out is by moving to another country. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's I'm not extreme joking. in this its own way, people I do. guess, you know? Yeah, it's like, I call it the witness protection program in the sense just that the elders will start hounding you because, you know, they really genuinely think you're going to lose your life that Armageddon's coming tomorrow. It's not like they're evil. They're mm-hmm. just like victims of victims. Like, they, we've been all taught this when we were kids. But the problem is if you want to keep your family and not get shunned, you have to sort of like just disappear because the second they find out you don't believe— you're going to get disfellowshipped and the whole thing's going to blow up. So for me, in my situation, I like there was no way to just like sort of slip out of there or slink out of the religion. I was in a pretty prominent position as a sort of missionary in China and my husband was an elder. And um, I also think there was a fear in myself in a way that it's easy to get pulled back into it. Like I knew some things were wrong by the time I got to this point, but I still had a lot of fear. I still kind of believed that it was mostly true, but then I was just unable to keep doing it because it didn't feel true enough anymore. But it's like there's this sort of pull. It's like this gravitational pull. It's the only world you know Mm -hmm. from basically from childhood. So how do you make a break from it? It's not easy. So you had to pin the scarlet letter on your own chest, kind of. Like, yeah. I am, yep, yeah, you're right. Totally. I did that. And I kind of owned it. Like, I didn't, it was weird. It was, although it sort of seemed not my image of who I thought I was, I remember after it happened, I was really horrified that I would have ever, you know, ha- cheated on someone. But all the same, I was like, I just felt, yeah, I did it. And also, you're in the framework of a society where that's the only way to get out is to do it with somebody. <laughs> you can't end a marriage because of irreconcilable differences. You have to have sex with someone else in order to get divorced. So when that's the frame your framework you're operating with, that's sort of the only way you see out. And people may have picked up from the way that we're talking about this, the other twist <laughs> in this story, which is that it turns out that that was not a relationship that lasted. In yeah, fact, no. extremely not lasted. It, no. from, the, from the way you tell it in the book, it was he 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 ghosted you, as the kids say, almost. Yeah. Yeah. There was more, but like, you know, sorry, just as an aside, the, the book could have gone on with 500 more G-chats, but <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the day, that was essentially what, yes, happened. <laughs> he, he was done. And that's, uh, whatever, I don't want to get in the psychology of that, because it seems yeah. like you still have a fairly generous attitude towards him. Yeah. But again, so as a woman who's had some parallel things happen in my own life mm-hmm. where I, I've i done something because of a relationship and then the relationship turns out not to be the thing. Yeah. Uh, talk about what that shift was like. It must have in some ways, I mean, it was 
both dark but empowering, perhaps? Well, there's two ways to think about it. I can talk about it from the point, the state of mind I was in then versus now. So you see a lot more with time. At the time, I was devastated. I didn't have anyone else. Everyone had already shunned me. And then this Jonathan was kind of like this lifeline. And he was a really, he is a very supportive person by nature. Mm -hmm. However, you know, how that support can look when you're on the other side of the world versus whether you're living in a same house together. Like how much could you be that supportive of someone if they were in your space every day? Mm -hmm. Well, if it's sort of like on call at night, one hour, it's maybe a lot easier than something that is more holistic. Also, like looking back to speak to how I think of it now is the sense like, who would do that? Like it's not (laughs) normal (laughs) for somebody to just start deprogramming someone and spending like hours and hours talking to them online trying to help you know he had there was a certain dynamic going on there where I think Jonathan felt like he was kind of saving me and he started to seem to me kind of I didn't think of this at the time but a little bit like my savior Mm -hmm. and I mean that is not a basis to start off a healthy relationship you know especially to someone who's like in a religion that's used to having (laughs) Like a Jesus figure, you know. Yeah, in my in my case, the, my parallel happening, I wound up being incredibly grateful for the space that that gave me. Yeah, right. Because I know if that relationship had been successful, just to speak in, in the twelve step program sort of terms, I probably would be dead by now. Like, yeah. d- I mean, just because I don't think I could have stayed sober because I wasn't doing it for myself. Mm, yeah, you know. Uh, it's a lot of parallels. Yeah, yeah. I had to have my heart broken so that I could be the one to fix it. Yeah. Instead of having some dude, which is my story of my life, <laughs> prior yeah. to that, was having someone uh, fix me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I was in a place where only I could fix me. I never would have gotten there on my own. I never would have chosen to fix myself. No, it's too hard. Oh, God. You know, yeah. You don't choose it. It chooses you. <laughs> but Or you subconsciously choose it, I think, maybe. Yeah, that's sort of where, where I've kind of landed. And I definitely, in reading your story, I see that for sure. Yeah. You know, like you had to do what you had to do to get out of there. And also, if I had, say, let's say I had embarked on a relationship with Jonathan at that moment and gotten married, I would have been doing the exact same thing I had done at, you know, age of 22 and when I married my husband, is that... I didn't know myself. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and here I am, like, attaching myself to a man without even really fully knowing what I need. And ultimately, like you say, looking back, you know, 10 years go by, I'm like, oh, no, no, that was, it was not what I needed. It's not what I wanted even. But at the time, I thought I did. So, yeah, you're right. I think it's the same thing that you went through. Would you buy a T-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? Of course you wouldn't. And that is why you and I love Everlane. You will never overpay for your clothes. They only make the premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups. They want you to know what you're paying for and why. So they tell you their real costs and they are radically transparent about every step in the process, from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. No matter your style or preference, Everlane's clothes look better, cost less and last longer. And because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. 
I happen to love uh, their summer weight jeans that they came out with this year. Um, that sounds weird. I'd never actually conceived of an idea of summer weight jeans, but they're basically like the thinnest, lightest denim you can make. Again, in these sticky summer days, that's a very good thing to have. Um, and they fit incredible. Um, I'm I, I don't know if it's the trend or it's my age, but I like a good mid-rise jeans these days. And these are the perfect mid-rise jeans. Right now, you can check out my personalized collection at everlane.com slash friends, and you will get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com slash friends, E-V-E-R-L-A-N-E dot com slash friends. Cats are natural-born predators, and there is nothing they like better than the thrill of a good chase. And that is why the folks at Petronix invented Mouser, a fully autonomous robotic mouse that, that sounds actually kind of scary, uh, that can actually sense and react to how your cat is playing. Mouser even has an all-day play mode, so you can turn it on when you leave the house, and Mouser will wake up whenever your cat wants to play. It has fully customizable auto-play modes, a smartphone remote control interface, and interchangeable tail attachments, which are like these fuzzy, you know, fuzzy little things, like feathery things like cats like to play with. Mouser is the last toy your cat will ever need. And here I will let you in a little behind-the-scenes negotiation that happened about this uh, sponsor, which is that we are fighting over who gets to use the sample that they sent. Um, Brock, uh, my producer, and I both have multiple cats. We are cat people. And... Um, you know, like, I, I need to see how it works, but also he needs to see how it works. And instead of actually seeing, we're still arguing, I think we're probably just going to take turns. That would be the wise thing to do. But you can look on YouTube uh, for how cats interacted with it. And while I do find the prospect of an AI mouse in my house a little creepy, I already know that the cats are really going to love this. The real problem is going to be if the dog loves it, too. Now, if you want to investigate Petronix, you can right now get 20% off by visiting petronix.io slash friends. Using the code friends at checkout, that's P-E-T-R-O-N-I-C-S dot I-O slash friends with checkout code friends to save 20% because your cat is worth it. Here we can move on to let's update everybody to today in a way because that experience that I had. I sometimes look at as, I'm not going to use the word proof, but I'm going to use it as, I'm going to say, that experience to me suggests the existence of my higher power, Mm -hmm. right? Now, I realize, like, I'm the one seeing the patterns. You know, I'm the one who looks back and and poses, like, yep, that's the way it had to happen. Yeah. Right? But also, there's a part of me that's like, hmm, you know, that worked out in a way that it needed to work out. Perhaps there mm-hmm. is something somewhere yeah, uh, that has a part in that. Where are you these days? Mm. I don't—it's hard for me to think in those terms because um, it's not that I believe—I actually do believe in some higher force, power. I feel like our language doesn't have the right word to mm-hmm. describe it. Because every word that I use, if I say a god or create like like being all of these things have been co-opted by religion. Mm-hmm. So I I definitely don't think of spirituality or like God in those terms of religious terms. Um I think I'm a little more of the camp where I think things happen because 
of sometimes just the right combination of circumstances and also because of what you attract at that time or what you're attracted to. And I've, I've done a lot of reading and come to the conclusion that I think sometimes you're attracted to someone because you need to learn that thing. Like it's not resolved in you and that you invite that person to your life because they're going to actually kind of teach you something that maybe you need to know. <laughs> so I think that's kind of where I land at this point, rather than thinking there's any kind of higher direction. Because I think for me what's happened, not for more spoilers, but like— no, we should. I was going to say this is an important—there's actually an important <laughs> yeah. sort of shaping fact here. Yeah, because after I left the religion many years later, I suffered terrible tragedy of my son dying on his first day in daycare— and to me, if there were any kind of higher power directing something, I don't think that anyone, anything would direct something like that to happen. Or if they did, maybe it would happen to someone like, it was really evil. I don't know. <laughs> it just doesn't seem like, it doesn't, right. I, no, have, to, I have to reconcile all I, I'm sorry things. to even laugh, but it, it is, no, this is a classic, fine. this is almost, I mean, there have literally been books written from the premise of a of a child's death being the thing that makes if, if that is the loudest renunciation or the most uh, 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 you know vivid case yeah against a higher power is the death of an innocent yeah so yeah basically it it I think I was already at a point where I sort of I don't know it's hard for me to not that kind of is such a huge the event and tragedy that happened in my life, it's hard for it not to override any and the other experience of God or whatever you want to use, whatever word you want to use. I guess that's sort of what the mechanism at play for me is. Yeah. I feel almost bad even like have have, have having dragged you into this discussion without p- putting that in the foreground because it is— it's okay, it's okay, actually. I like it because for me, a lot of times I think people, they ignore the topic and they can't— I, I think about it all the time, of course. My son's always on my mind. So it's actually kind of a relief when someone's willing to talk about it, to be honest. <laughs> a lot of people don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I found that section of the book um, incredibly compelling. I mean, it's very honest. Uh, and you don't end—I um, mean, it's beautifully written, but you don't end in a neat place, right, philosophically. No. Because—and that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. This is a messy world. It's a messy existence. Um. But you do kind of leave open, like I, when I was reading it, you, I, I did still want to ask you about where you are with your spiritual, uh, I mean, again, you're right, the language is not, all the languages have yeah, been co-opted. <laughs> I know what you mean, though. <laughs> you know, because I call myself a Christian, but I don't even like that term, you mm-hmm. know. Um, I actually would like prefer follower of Christ. Um, yeah. He was a cool like dude. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I try to be Christ-like. I try to follow the example of Christ in my life. Um, but you do leave open, because I think you have to, some breathing space for a power, a source, an entity. I, that demon sounds right. But the, I was wondering when I got to the end of the book, like, where is she now? Where, what, is, what makes yeah. sense to her now? Well, here's the thing is that, for example, even just a loss, like the loss of my son, is a loss so utterly devastating. And, you know, he's gone. Mm -hmm. Like, he's literally gone. Some people see their child, like, in the wind or like a goat. Like, I don't see that. He's gone. Um, He doesn't exist on this world anymore. But 
you know, there's certain things you can't reconcile. So some people might think that by me saying that, I'm like, oh, well, I don't believe in anything of the spiritual realm. But there's a lot of things you can't reconcile with the idea that there's nothing, like there's absolutely nothing. Because, for example, he's gone, but, you know, like I can conjure up memories of him. I have something of him. Like, what is that? Is that spiritual realm? I don't know. Um, I also think about how he used to look at me with this look that was transcendent. It was nothing I've ever experienced before, this sort of look of love and adoration, just like connection that I had with him. And although he's gone, it doesn't feel like that's gone um, because that's just something that stays with you. It's so numinous or, I don't know, as again, there's no words. It's so beautiful. Um, And then there's like other things like from being a very small child, I think I sort of transferred these feelings onto religion, but I've always been a person with kind of a spiritual nature. And I would sometimes even like get sort of transcendent experiences in nature or in reading literature, this type of thing. So to me, I just feel that there's like all these dimensions beyond that physical dimension that there's no way I can say that this is all, this is it. Because even in our own minds, there's like a multitude of things. I mean, so... Ultimately, my, where I'm at now is that I just think that there's a ton of things that are just a mystery and that maybe one day we'll understand. But right now, like as human beings, we're pretty small. Our lives are very short. And this is what we've got. And we've actually got quite a lot right in front of us. So I've tried to sort of trade in this idea of needing to know everything. Because one thing about a religion like the Jehovah's Witnesses is that they have the answers to all of this stuff. It was great. It was so relaxing. I knew everything. I knew why people died. I knew what was going to happen after we died. But, I've, you know, when, that, when you realize it's not actually true, it's just something that we want to believe is true. You're trading it in and you're in the here and now and you're almost like appreciating everything that you actually do have. And that to me feels like a form of spirituality. And I think it's hard for us to come around to these ways of thinking because we're so used to religion having this monopoly on spiritual experiences. So we just sort of think of it as something religious, but I don't think it has anything to do with religion, actually. I think it has to do with being a human being. I think that's a great place for us to end our conversation. I have so many more questions, but I assume you're going to write another book or we'll have another occasion to talk to each other. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Because this has been delightful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. And that is it for today's show, which, to give you yet another peek behind the curtain, uh, got scrambled a little bit because we had some guest mix-ups and cancellations. And that actually gave me the occasion to consider telling you all, you know, if you have to cancel something because of a personal emergency, you should do that. And you shouldn't feel bad about it. If you have a thing you need to address, that thing is more important than anything else. And if the people you're canceling on give you shit about it, that's their problem and not yours. Because it is very, very important. And I must remind you to please take care of yourselves. 
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.